I'm Ron Lutz. Uh, I live in Glenside, Pennsylvania. I was pastor of New Life in Dresher, Pennsylvania for many years, and I currently am doing a part-time ministry of pastoral care with missionaries overseas. And by the way, uh, of a great connection with this church because I work with an organization that uh, works with Josh and Christy in the Middle East that this church has history with and supports. It's a real privilege to work with them and all the other folks that I work with in Spain and North Africa and the Middle East. Also, I want to thank you as a church. For many years, you've been supporting my sister and brother-in-law, Richard and Robin Crane, who are MTW missionaries to Latin America. I know they have a long history with this congregation. Uh, I was here three years ago. Hard to believe it's that long ago. I preached once in the summer of 19, and it's good to be back. We all have been through a lot uh, since then with the pandemic and everything. And uh, I just want to mention something personally because it has a lot to do with the text we're looking at and what I'm preaching today. Uh, If you heard me three years ago, you may remember that at that point my wife was battling a very serious form of cancer, a sarcoma cancer. We knew the prognosis was quite sobering, and um, the Lord gave us two more years together after that, and she went home to be with Jesus in June of last year, 21. I say that because it's connected to the psalm that we're looking at today. Uh, In the spring, our church was making up their preaching schedule for the summer. Our pastor, also Anthony, uh, had a summer sabbatical like your pastor. And they laid out a, a schedule for the preaching and said, on this date, could you preach on Psalm 130? And I couldn't believe that they were asking me to preach on Psalm 130 because this is a psalm that had meant so much to my wife, Sue, and I. Um, There's a song that some of you may know by Shane and Shane called I Will Wait For You that's based on this psalm that we listened to so much together and after she died, I'm sure I've listened to it hundreds of times um, because it has ministered to me so much. So um, I couldn't believe in God's providence that I'd been asked to preach on this, and it's a privilege to share it with you too, some some reflections. So Psalm 130, a wonderful psalm, only eight verses, but filled with so much. So I'm going to read the text out of the ESV. I know you have NIV Bibles in in the pews but follow me with whatever you have. Whatever version you're using, I would encourage you to keep it open during the sermon. So listen to the word of the Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love. 
and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his inequities. This is the word of the Lord. May he apply it and bless it to us. So years ago in our church, I had a friend who I loved interacting with because whenever I would ask him how he was doing, he was brutally honest. And often he would say something like, well, I feel like spiritually I'm barely hanging on by the edges of my fingernails. I feel like I have one nostril above the waterline. And when he would elaborate on that, he would say, I blew it again. I hurt the people closest to me again. I failed again, and I wonder if I'm ever going to change. But then he would always add comments of hope because he knew that Jesus was with him and that Jesus would help him. But I appreciated his honesty. That's where this psalm starts. Out of the depths I cry. It's a cry for mercy. And as you know, there are a lot of psalms that start with uh, that kind of cry of desperation out of the depths. Many of them, though, have to do with external circumstances. I have enemies who are after me, people who want to kill me. I'm dealing with terrible suffering in my life. But this is one of the penitential psalms that's all about what's going on inside. His grappling with his fallen nature, his guilt, and his shame. And it's a wonderful psalm, and I pray that the Lord will use it in all of our lives today. So here's the three points we're going to look at, the three headings. Number one, crying for mercy. Number two, forgiveness and fear. And and thirdly, waiting in hope. Okay, crying for mercy, forgiveness and fear, and waiting in hope. And again, listen to verses one to three and look at them in your Bibles. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? What's the answer to that last question? If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand? It's pretty obvious. The answer is no one. None of us could stand before the righteous and holy God that we believe in were it not for his mercy and forgiveness. And I wonder if you've ever wondered that. How can I stand before the Lord? Have you ever wondered, how many times can I act like a prodigal and run out and squander my inheritance and eat the food of pigs and then feel sorry for myself and run back home And how many times will the Lord be willing to run towards me and hug me and embrace me and kiss me? Isn't there a limit? And will I come to that point when I try to go back to him and I realize he's closed the gate and turned his back on me in disgust and said, I give up? Do you ever wonder that? I think that's what the psalmist was was wrestling with. And yet we see where he ends up with the gospel of hope as he preaches to himself. But, yeah, as you look at your life, do you ever say, oh, that outburst of anger again, where did it come from? 
I hurt the people closest to me again. I told a lie, and it made no sense. I betrayed a friend. I'm carrying around this hatred in my heart and resentment. Where does it come from? Lord, is there, is there help? Is there mercy for me? Recently, I've been convicted again, <laughs> after many times, of the anger that I sometimes experience when I'm driving. Has that ever happened to you? And sometimes it's just so irrational because somebody cuts me off or somebody's tailgating me or, or whatever, you know, and I no longer have my wife sitting by my side saying, putting her hand on mine saying, honey, do you think you might be overreacting a little bit? <laughs> and sometimes her words were stronger than that. Uh, but I said, where, where does this irrational anger come from about someone else's driving? Lord, change me. Change me. Um, as we look at this psalm, and as you think about your life and the things you struggle with, a question that I have for all of us is this. Does the gospel speak to our guilt before the Lord, before the righteous holy God that we profess? Does the gospel speak to our shame before the Lord? Does, does it speak to both? And we could spend hours talking about guilt and shame and the difference, but let me just give you really quick definitions and then give you the answer of how the gospel speaks. Guilt is feeling bad about what we have done, okay? Guilt, feeling bad about concrete things that you've done. You told a lot, an outburst of anger. You went somewhere on the internet that you shouldn't go. You, you fell into that old sin again. Guilt is feeling bad about what we have done. Shame is feeling bad about who we are. And it's more vague, and sometimes it's broader, but I look at myself and the way I'm made and the way I'm wired and the way I function and my failures, whatever, and I, and I just feel this sometimes a vague sense of shame about who I am. Do you struggle with both? Most of us do. So the question is, does the good news of the gospel speak to both guilt and shame? And what I want to tell you unequivocally is absolutely yes. And I'm rushing ahead of myself in the outline a little bit here, but I want to tell you the good news about the gospel. Uh, the way my mentor, you always used to summarize it, Jack, mentor, uh, Jack Miller, my mentor, um, was this. He would always start by saying, with a big smile and a big laugh, he said, cheer up, you're a lot worse than you think. <laughs> now that was leading to the good news, but he would elaborate on that and say, the first thing you need to recognize is that you are a lot more sinful and broken and dysfunctional and messed up than you ever knew. That doesn't sound like very good news, does it? But it's it's the bad news that we have to accept to get to the good news. So, so those things are true. But then secondly, if you are in Jesus and you trust in him, you can know that you are more forgiven, more loved, more cherished, more valued than you would ever dare to imagine. That's the good news of the gospel. And that truth speaks to both guilt and shame. You are forgiven, but yes, you are also treasured and valued and loved 
by the God of glory who receives you into his presence. And that's what this psalmist is starting to understand. Uh, this side of the cross, we can understand it a lot better than he did. But that leads into the second heading that we're looking at, forgiveness and fear. And here I want us to look at, again at verses 4 and then 7 and 8. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. After he asks the question, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? He then immediately says, but with you, but with you, but with you there is forgiveness. This is one of the great but God statements in the Bible. There's so many of them where, where the writer sets up a problem and then he says, but God, but God. Like in Ephesians 2 where, where Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were you were victimized, as it were, by your passions. You were children of wrath. And then he says, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ. By grace, we are saved. You are saved. That is the good news of the gospel, and that's what he's saying here. And it's similar to what Psalm 103 says. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. We wouldn't be able to stand before him if he did. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. In other words, if you are here today and you are burdened by guilt and shame and those things in your life that keep repeating themselves, and you cry out like Paul, you know, I, I find myself doing the things I hate and not doing the things I want to do and all the rest, and I don't know where to go. The gospel says to you, the Lord says to you, I will never remember your sins against you because I have remembered them against Jesus. And your sins cannot be punished and paid for twice. I will never deal with you according to your iniquities because I dealt with Jesus according to your iniquities. Isn't that good news? That's the good news of the gospel. And it's not, you know, God in, in some way just being a vague sort of God of love. No, he's a God of justice and wrath. But he says, your sins were dealt with at the cross. Therefore... Therefore, there is no condemnation remaining for you in him. Many of you know that Martin Luther had his life totally transformed by the gospel when he discovered the real meaning of the gospel <clears throat> in the New Testament. This man who had a very sensitive conscience and was neurotically uh, guilt-ridden at points in his life, and then, poof, you know, his world exploded, and the Protestant Reformation began as he discovered the gospel. And here's a quote of his that I love about he, how he learned to deal with accusations that came from the enemy. He said, so when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? 
I love that. <laughs> I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. That's what you and I can do. With you there is forgiveness. Therefore you are feared, which basically means therefore you are worshipped. There's a great story in the first Harry Potter book where Harry thinks that he's going to be killed by the evil Lord Voldemort. He's convinced that he's going to be killed, but when Voldemort tries to kill him, he, he's unable, and, and he experiences agonizing pain. And Harry emerges healthy and free, and he can't figure out what happened. So he goes to his mentor, Dumbledore, and says, what's this all about? And I love Dumbledore's answer. He says, your mother died to save you. Love as powerful as your mother's for you leaves its own mark. Not a scar, no visible sign, but to have been loved so deeply will give us some protection forever. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the gospel? Your mother died to save you, and that kind of love gives you protection forever. And we can say, obviously, Jesus died to save me. And that gives me the ultimate protection forever. Now, I've been a pastor long enough to know that sometimes people hear all of this about what Christ did for us and the forgiveness we can find in him, the redemption, the hope we have in him. But still struggle and respond by saying something like this. I'm thankful to hear about Jesus' love and what he did on the cross and all the rest. But you know what? I can't forgive myself. You've probably heard people say that. Maybe you've said it yourself. All this is great news, but I cannot forgive myself. So what's going on when we say that? Sometimes it comes from a person who has experienced a lot of disappointment, a lot of failure. Sometimes some bad decisions have been made that have changed the trajectory of their life, their career, their family, their relationships, all kinds of things. And I know that God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself for the mistakes that I made and the foolish things that I've done. Here's what one person said about that. This is actually a quote from my wife. She said, if you say, I know that God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself, you're underestimating what it cost God to forgive you. You're removing yourself from the greatest blessing of life, and you are saying, my standards are more important. And I'm saying, my standards are more important than the Lord's, and the, the Lord of glory knows me perfectly, 
knows you perfectly. He knows the best things about you. He knows the worst things about you. He knows your deep, dark secrets that nobody else knows. He knows things about you that you don't know. He knows you so perfectly and deeply. And this God of infinite glory and infinite holiness and infinite love says to you, if you are a child of God of his through Jesus Christ, he says, I love you with an infinite love. I am crazy about you. There is nothing that you can do to make me love you any more or to make me love you any less because I love you in Jesus Christ. Don't you think if he says that, that should outweigh our own, our evaluations of ourselves, that his standards should be more important. And, and he wants us to bask in that and relax in that and say, yes, Lord, I belong to you and I thank you for your, your goodness and your grace. Okay, let's go to the third heading, waiting in hope. And I love these verses. And this is the part of that chain and chain song that spoke to me and my wife so much. In verses 5 and 6, he says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. Now, what's going on here? And how does this connect to the forgiveness? I think what he's saying is, I know that believing in my forgiveness and standing before the Lord isn't a once and done thing. It, it doesn't just happen once. There is a waiting on the Lord all the time with hope and anticipation that's required for me to savor it and enjoy it and believe it. And this is not a bored kind of waiting. Uh, I w waited two hours at the DMV recently to get my, my picture taken for my driver's license. That was a boring wait. Or, you know, I was stuck in a terrible traffic jam on a school kill not too long ago. Those are boring wait. No, this is the weight of hope and anticipation. Like going to the airport to meet some family members that you haven't seen for two years because of the pandemic. It's the waiting of a couple for the baby that they've been expecting for nine months to arrive. You know, it's that kind of hope-filled waiting. And he says, I'm waiting for the Lord. Notice, that's what he says. He doesn't say, I'm waiting for the Lord to do thus and so. You know, we wait for the Lord to answer prayers, a lot of legitimate prayers. Lord, I need a new job. Lord, I'm praying for that prodigal in the family to come back. Lord, I'm praying for my health to improve. I'm praying for some good news when I get the report from the doctor about that test. You know, we pray about all those legitimate things, but here he's saying, I'm not waiting for the Lord to do something. I am waiting for him. I am waiting for him. Elizabeth Elliot has a great quote. She said, the secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. Isn't that good? So he's not saying, I'm waiting for the Lord to change my circumstances. No, I'm waiting for him. I'm waiting for that one thing that Jesus said Mary was seeking and that would not be taken from her. The one thing that Psalm 27 talks about, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord 
and to inquire in his temple. That's the one thing. Not too long ago, I heard a pastor, a little bit younger than me, but he's been a pastor for quite a while, interviewed on a podcast. And he said something that really struck me and convicted me. He said, I'm coming to realize that for most of my life, I've been more of a human doer than a human being. And he elaborated that, and he said, you know, I've always been a responsible person. I work hard. I take, take care of my wife and my family, my kids, the house. I work hard as a pastor. I work on preparing sermons, and I do hospital visitation, and I lead meetings and all the rest. But he said, I'm always doing, 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 and I have such a hard time slowing down and sitting at Jesus' feet and hearing his voice and being a human being in that sense. And I said, ouch, because <laughs> he was really describing me. That's what the psalmist is doing here. He's saying, I am waiting for the Lord because I know that I need him more than anything else. The parts of the song, the Shane and Shane song, that have impacted me so much and meant so much to my wife as well are talking about this. They say things like this, I will wait for you, I will wait for you, on your word I will rely. I will wait for you, surely wait for you, till my soul is satisfied. And for Sue, towards the end of her life, she knew that waiting for the Lord meant that before long she was going to be in his presence and see him, waiting for him in that sense. And some of her last words before she died, when I said, honey, it looks like the Lord is going to take you home soon, she said, and this is on morphine, and she wasn't all, all there, but she was so clear in saying that is my sure and certain hope all of this is not worth comparing with what's going to come, and I am going to see Jesus face to face. It was breathtaking because she was waiting for him and waiting to be in his presence. But for me, losing my, my bride of 48 years, and we knew each other for 52 years, there's, I'm an amputee. There's this huge hole in my life. And the words of that song have meant so much to me. I will wait for you, surely wait for you, till my soul is satisfied. I'm not going to try to fill up my life with all kinds of other things. I need to wait for you to satisfy me and to work in my heart. I will wait for you th through the storm and through the night. And we all go through storms. We all go through dark nights. I don't know what yours are right now or what they will be in the future. But that's what this psalm is talking about. I'm going to wait for you through the storm, through the night, through the darkest times, through the worst suffering, through the things that I just can't understand. I'm going to wait for you, Lord, because I know that I can be satisfied and filled in you because of your love and grace for me in Jesus Christ. Let me share a quote with you in closing from Scott Sauls. He's a PCA pastor. 
because I think it, it, it summarizes what we should do in response to a lot of this. And he's calling us to move towards Jesus. And I don't know what that looks like for you today, to move towards Jesus in a small way of belief and trust and saying, Lord, I'm crying out to you for mercy. Lord, I want your help. Lord, I want to wait on you. But listen to the way uh, Scott Sauls puts it. He says, if you give Jesus one inch of your trust, he will respond by giving you a hundred miles of love and affection. If you give Jesus one thimbleful of pleading, he will return to you an ocean full of compassion and care. Isn't that great? I love that. Give Jesus one inch of your trust, and he will respond by giving you a hundred miles of love and affection. What would that look like for you today? To move towards him, even by one inch. He wants to meet you. He wants to satisfy you. He wants to show you his love and mercy and grace. And he's longing for you to say, here I am, Lord. (laughs) I'm empty, I'm needy, I'm broken. Would you come and bless me? Would you come and bless me? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your invitation to come to you. You say, come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And Lord, you know the things that weary us, the things that we are burdened by today. You know what's going on in every single life in this room. You know us perfectly. And we know and we believe that your grace is sufficient. So I pray that you'd give us the grace we need to take that one inch, that moving one inch towards you, and then that you would meet us there and pour out your spirit upon us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that when we wait for you, when we wait for you, we will not be disappointed. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.